Hey, how's it going, Champagne Sharks? Hope everyone's doing well. Just wanted to uh, do some quick house cleaning, let people know. Go to ChampagneSharks.com and you get access to all the links related to Champagne Sharks. You can go there and find it all. And you can find where we are on social media, our products, all that stuff. Also, Patreon benefits, which includes Discord server, book club night, movie night discussions, show notes, newsletter, and most importantly, bonus episodes. So definitely become a patron for $5 a month at patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks. And without further ado, here is the episode. Take care. Hey, what's going on, Champagne Sharks? This is uh, Trevor, and we have with us, uh, this movie was so amazing. We needed four people uh, on the pod to review it. It's, uh, you have Michael R. Jackson. Hey, y'all. And, two, and you're free to say more. If All you want to do is say, hey, hey y'all, that's fine, too. Wait, like more about the movie or more about... No, no, more about, more about yourself and anything you want people to know about you. I ain't nobody. <laughs> that's what I have to say. All I'm right. nobody. Who are you? That's my favorite quote. <laughs> Emily Dickinson. I'm nobody. Who are you? Okay. Uh, I'm Tume Gant. I'm Tume Gant, filmmaker, professor, talker. You know, that's, the, that's, that's what I'll give it, you know. Richard Purcell? Richard Purcell, same talker, professor. I profess. All right. And Jason England? Well, we got that Chappelle show dynamic. It's rapping, bunch of niggas talking. <laughs> bunch of talkers on the podcast. Um, yeah, I'm uh, Jason England. I've been on, on on this podcast before, and I'm, I'm really happy to be back, especially in the company um, of these thinkers and talkers who I respect quite a bit. So um, I teach uh, creative writing and nonfiction, and um, I've been teaching Erasure for over a decade, so I felt particularly... Um, invested in the film uh but also i felt a sense of dread before going to it <laughs> did it did it uh surpass your dread or was it a little bit better or just about where the dread was i actually think my expectations were set appropriately low and i was very forgiving going in because i'm, I'm not naive about what hollywood does to films right there are sacrifices you have to make in service to profit in a broader audience um but i never anticipated that i would come out of the movie viewing it as a moral failing you know and that's where i landed yeah yeah for sure uh yeah that i went in with my expectations really low and then in the beginning was kind of surpassing my expectations uh but still bad but I, my expectation was so low that i was like okay um he's not getting the book but at least this movie is like kind of watchable and then i spoke too soon it uh went below my initial um expectations about a third of the way through i think Probably when he changed the way, uh, spoilers, but I don't know why I should say spoilers. I think if you're going to click a review about something, you've pretty much forfeited that, but people complain. But anyway, uh, spoilers, when they changed the way the sister died, mm-hmm. uh, that's when I knew, okay, I'm in for a bad time because that was such an unnecessary change. I'm like, the only reason you could possibly have to change this to me is, um, I don't want to use this word lightly, but I just can't think of a better word. Is like a cowardice. There's a streak of cowardice that I think shoots through this movie. As in, anytime something physical is going to be hard, uh, not even just technically hard, but just emotionally hard, he just chooses the easier, easier way. And one thing about the book Erasure that is based on, I think we've all read it, is uh, that's not somebody who, first of all, Everett, you know, whether you like the book or not, I like the book. That's somebody who's clearly trying to challenge himself when he writes. And to have like a 
filmmaker adapted who's clearly trying to make this easy on himself and the audience is uh, very, very jarring. And so I think I might be the only one on the podcast who had the opposite experience of I saw the movie first and then I read the book. And so I went in with kind of low expectations, but kind of just because I've been seeing so much like terrible shit recently, I kind of was like, this, what can this possibly be? And I went in with a low expectation. I got to the end of the movie and was like mad about it. Then I read the book and then my like just base madness turned into like all encompassing fiery contempt, rage. I wanted to kill somebody. Like I was so upset when I, when I read the book and saw like, and reflected on what he had done to the story, the form, the content, all of it. Uh, Richard, I want to make sure you get uh, plenty of time to talk today because I feel like the last time you were on the show, uh, you got the short end of the uh, shrift. So, well, the last time I was on, it was just you and I. So, like, no, we, no, I mean, we... the last time we were on a group show, I should say. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with Michael. I mean, I I've read the novel before. I've I've been teaching it for a long time in uh, various classes. I've taught. And, um, but I agree in terms of the, the rage factor precisely because, and Mike, you, you made a really good point. The form of the novel, it's an incredibly experimental novel is just not matched by the movie. Like you could have made at least an experimental film, but, um, instead it's intensely conventional. Um, Jason and I were talking earlier, you know, it, it, it felt more like a televisual sitcom and a kind of melodrama than it did a kind of metafictional exploration about race, about family narratives. Like the, the, the novel itself um, really challenges the reader. And as we're all seemingly saying, the, the film does not, it refuses the challenge to the audience. Yeah. And, and you know, I think one problem, uh, a big problem with it to me, right? There's this thing that I think happens now, and I think it's in the age of content. You know, like I always, I've been like stuck on this idea of content versus uh, works. You know, and and um, in this age, in this age of content, there's this idea anybody can do anything, and I've got to be this multi hyphenate and all this stuff. And he talked about how he got into directing and everything, and. He said while he was filming the show Master of None with uh, Aziz Ansari, uh, there's plenty of articles. He tells a story to anyone who would listen, and I think it's actually not a good story, but he thinks it is. I'll read, I'll read it right now. It says, Cord Jefferson says Aziz Ansari planted a seed for him to direct American fiction while filming Master of None. I'm not going to read the whole article. I'm just going to read the relevant paragraphs. He says, Cord Jefferson didn't want always know he wanted to be a director. While working on Netflix's comedy series Master of None, actor slash writer slash creator Aziz Ansari asked Jefferson out of the blue if he ever wanted to direct. Jefferson recalls, I said, no, I've never been to film school. I don't know anything about cameras or lighting. That's not for me. And then he told him, dude, I went to NYU for business. I never went to film school. I've just been on sets and paid attention. All you need is to hire people who understand the technical stuff and then be able to articulate what's in your head. And I'm like, first off, why are you learning directing from someone who himself admits he didn't really know, know directing? I just feel like it's, that's such a terrible attitude. But when you're adapting a work from somebody who's clearly a master at their field, like first of all, Everett, to me, isn't someone who just, to me, treats writing as uh, have an idea and just give it to someone else to do technical stuff. I feel like it needs someone who takes directing as seriously as, um, first of all, Everett takes 
literature. And I think that's the start of the disconnect. Like, I think he wanted the bragging rights of being a writer-director. It helps you for winning awards. It, you know, sounds like uh, more like an auteur or whatever. And I think he wasn't ready. Like, as bad as it was with the way it adapted the work, just on its own in the vacuum, forget Percival Everett, just as directing, it felt like TV directing. It felt like, you know, a journeyman came in and did an episode of a TV show with a script he was given, and that was it. Well, it's funny, because that that story that Jefferson, like, shares is something that's told to a lot of people who Hollywood wants to become directors. You know, some dude who is a showrunner or something like that. You know, he talks, hey, you should direct, you should direct. And then what they tell them is like, hey, just hire the right people. I call it the Ben Affleck school of filmmaking. Like Ben Affleck has all the money to like hire all these people to make his movies look pristine, right? And make his movies look Hollywood ready. But he doesn't really know that much about like cinema in a real like deep way. And Jefferson knows probably even less. So they probably told him that. And what he doesn't realize is that actually does expose him of just being part of the same kind of dry um uh hierarchical strange thing that hollywood is where it's not really about art it's about you say like creating content churning out stuff and yeah i mean it's i read erasure years ago and i i it was strange because it was a book that i never like thought would ever be adapted i was i never thought about it i like never thought about it i read it i think i read it in like 2008 or 9 and i remember it like it, it blew me back i was like i was actually going through a weird period i was like oh man it messed me up and then I became a big Everett fan after that. And I've read like four of his books. Actually, I read his book Trees last was two, like like a year and a half ago. And I remember and then that's why I discovered that Eraser was actually being adapted. I had saw that it was um optioned and I got I got a little nervous, but I like I like but I was like, maybe it's one of those options that will that won't happen. <laughs> Cause they happen all the time, you know? Yeah. Um so when it got, you know, grabbed and put into this machine and this movie gets made, I am very curious at this person taking this thing and totally like like just sucking the life out of it you know to make a kind of hollywood product but that's he it's like he got chosen to do that job or it's also chosen because not like they were doing wanted to do this to erasure um in particular but more like hey jefferson kind of fits that mold he is of that mold he'll take these things he'll make them right to where we want and you know he'll be able to kind of you know hit the tones the way we need but he to me when i hear him speak or especially in that statement and other statements i just see someone who is run of the mill and the film is run of the mill which is what's crazy and but with the crate to me though the the and i'll be curious what jason gets to the moral failing because idea because what's really wild to me about the movie is the blandness is actually what he's saying we should be aiming for in mm -hmm. black cinema which is crazy to me which is an insane thought that this kind of bland way he reinterprets the story of monk and his family as this kind of like weak Kenneth Lonergan sl slash lifetime ish type thing happening is what we should no, be. No, lifetime has flavor. You know what? I'm sorry. Lifetime, yeah. At least they got Eric Roberts acting buck wild. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. 
<laughs> you know what? Let me not even do lifetime like that. Don't nobody talk no bad about my lifetime. I got also, you. Also, <laughs> also, also, lifetime. I think kind of knows what it is. My wife You're watches right. lifetime. Hallmark. It, Hallmark yeah. channel. Is that better? Yeah. That's better. Uh, yeah, Hallmark I mean, channel. I never watched Hallmark for sure. Yeah, it's bad. But um, <laughs> you. But he 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 makes that, and he makes that the ideal of what black cinema needs to be. And then that's where to me, because I had a similar experience. I'm watching a movie. I'm like, this is not good. This isn't good. And then there is there is a moment where the movie begins to show you what the ideal world is. And then I get, I got like, I got enraged as well. I got hot. I got hot. And, and I was just not, I was not in a good place with it after that. Um, One thing I want to say in response to what you said, you said that you feel like the film exposes, uh, him and you gave a bunch of things that exposes and that's actually part of my problem with this this feeling of being gaslighted is i feel the opposite i think it should expose it but it actually doesn't like uh when i saw it i was like oh man this is not gonna be good as far as the the response to it and then i went and i looked around and i'm like um again another example of am i the crazy one like uh all the way until the uh nominations were announced but there were just so many people telling me oh my god that movie was pretty pretty good people i trust and then i was like really okay same 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 i meant it really exposing to like the analytical people i i'm with you too though i will say though like i'm you know letterbox being whatever it is I always say I'm a, I'm an avid letterbox user and right now American fiction is like my third and I I trash American fiction. It's my third most liked review on the site. Mm. There's a lot of people who see through this movie. There's a, a lot of people who see it and they go this is some bullshit, dude. What is this? And they and a lot of them who've never even read the book who see through it. Mm-hmm. They can watch the movie on face value and go wait a minute, hold up. Some don't this ain't this don't smell right. So there is I think a strong section of people but you know those people are not going to be given a platform um to speak and 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 jefferson it's funny because you shared a clip to us and i i actually think jefferson is becoming aware of the criticisms because oh, some, yeah. some, some of some some of his um little comments recently i feel like are pot shots at people who are questioning the validity of how he presents the argument in the film. Um, which which clip? And I can play it. I can play it into the uh, stream. Both of those. The it, both side when he, when he's speaking. Um, and and the other ones because I was like, why are they bringing it up in this way? Why are why do they feel the need to defend this mm. vigorously? This idea that Hollywood is is living in an era where we want to just do slave and thug movies and not black bourgeoisie uh, dreams movies. One thing that just really bothered me on a basic level when I watched the movie and then read the book and then reflected on the two pieces was the movie doesn't even really show you who the character is. And there's like an extent to which you can't do all of that because there's a lot of interior life happening in the in the prose of the book. But like the because of the argument that he's making about what should what kind of representation should be shown versus what shouldn't, without really telling you what kind of writer Monk is, which he does extensively with the other book it that he shows in the uh that he's writing, that he reads 
from um, in the novel that you get a sense of who Monk is. Like, and he's and Monk is kind of like an asshole. I mean, yeah. but he's an asshole that I find relatable. Like, he's an asshole in the way that I'm an asshole, or yeah. you are an asshole, or any of us are. And like, and and I felt like in the movie, he's just sort of held up as like just having this reasonable um, gripe because his book isn't in the black section or isn't in the, the white section or the non-black section of the bookstore. But because he does, and the movie never tells you really who he is, I actually walk away with thinking that the, the real problem he has is being associated with being black at all. Uh, I have a theory about that uh, based on his interviews. And I feel like the problem that he's kind of having is I feel like uh, Cord Jefferson, I don't know if he's like this with everything he writes, but he is he is with this is um, he thinks Monk is him or he thinks Monk should be him. And yep. he can't separate himself from Monk, even to the point where I feel like uh, Jeffrey Wright is even low key kind of styled similar to just a, an older version of him. Um, you know, the bald head, the beard, the, you know, the, the whole look. And I think because when I see him talk about himself, he's very guarded about himself and uh, really seems to very curate, seems to very much curate um, his own image. Like, I think he wants to kind of hide in plain sight. Um, he doesn't want to criticize himself, doesn't want to say anything remotely controversial or uncomfortable. By seeing Monk as his avatar, he kind of brings the same feelings to um, Monk. He doesn't want to interrogate Monk too hard because Monk has become his uh, avatar. And he keeps saying it in interviews, like, I kept thinking this book was about me. Or, you know, I was like, how did uh, uh, Everett, like, was he spying on me? I'm like, first of all, this book came out in 2001. So how could he be spying on you? And not vice versa. It's just a weird way to even phrase it. Anyway, that's my theory as to the weaknesses of uh, and the fear to critique Monk in this. But in a way, it actually makes him worse. The kind of Mary suing. I mean, it has fake critique of Monk with the whole uh, listen to black women. But these type of people are fine saying that about themselves. Like, yeah, I learned that I need to listen to black women. That's one of those. That's one of those things. Like in the job interview, like you know, uh, if you ask me my flaw, I guess my flaw is I just work too hard, or you know, it's one of those backhand. I don't listen to black women. That's my flaw. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't listen to black women enough, but I, I'm learning that I need to. Uh, yeah, that type of thing. You like I, fake flattering the interviewer. I have a question because I haven't read the book recently, but Richard and Jason, you both read this, and Michael and Trevor. I never got the the impression that Monk was even a great writer when I read the book. So to me, that what? that was always a question to me when I read the book. Was he a great writer? Was he a a great writer who wasn't finding his greatness? I it but the movie for me made made it be like no he's he's this denied person yeah and I remember when I when I had the conversation with Jared Ball and Jared said his connection was he thought it when he watched the movie he thought it was something like the good persons the great persons being denied and I was like Jared no 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 I everything court I everything court took that lesson from the book that was I mean I have to say that this is one of the things that because I just read the book like right like I made sure to finish it by the end of last year or I finished it like around the 31st and that's what I, one of the thing one of the many things that I found to be so profoundly brilliant about it was that he really he just showed you who Monk was as a writer it like in the moment like it wasn't he didn't have like a judgment on him I mean Monk had his own opinion about his own work but it was but like as a me as a reader reading it it wasn't like I read his actual writing and was and swept away by it. It was like quite difficult to get through, but it, but it was yeah. also literally what he was most interested in. It was his 
his sort of obsessions with language and with space between words and all of that, all the stuff that's like, so to me, just as a fly on the wall, so esoteric and so sort of obsessive to the point of like kind of lunacy in a, in a funny kind of satirical way is how I read it. And so this idea that we're supposed to lionize Monk as like this sort of like writer in the Mount Rushmore writers when like he could just be any any sort of number of writers in a pile of books who's just has had a career. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll just say this really quick. Um, no, I, I think you're right. In the novel, um, Monk is as kind of marginal of a writer as a lot of the writers he's grouped up with. So in the novel, he's part like, so the, in the film, they go to this book conference and this is where he sees uh, Golden and they have this huge, you know, room where she's giving this talk and he's this little room with these other writers. I think we're writing like historical fiction. In the novel, he's giving a talk to a room of writers and he belongs to this thing called the Nouveau Roman Society. It's like, you know, the new novel. They're all like esoteric, weird, experimental writers. And he gives this ridiculous talk, right, that is very impenetrable to the reader and but not to the audience and it's kind of nonsensical and he angers one of the audience members who gets they mad get like, right and he gets get into a fight fucking hilarious yeah it's a really you funny wish scene that was in the movie right exactly and the point is like i agree with you michael that in the novel there's a level of like self-loathing that monk has about his own writing not because he doesn't think he's a good writer he just understands that he's not being read and he both has a kind of sense of um pride in his writing because you know he's a very learned you know kind of novelist but he also knows that there is a kind of irrelevance to all of it that is not in the movie like the movie plays with there's a different kind of uh racial politics in the movie around representation whereas in the novel it's not that it's not there it's just that like these layers of, of monk's personality um around like the, and the satire on his own self-loathing just are completely evacuated in the movie like you don't get any of that stuff in the in the movie itself but what there's there's three things there that i think you're all touching on that separates art from this sort of uh commodified smalls right and also that separates uh however you're portraying court jefferson in his interviews i haven't heard all of them and monk as the narrator um and one is interiority you know the, the novel has is so intensely interior and philosophical and you have this this the weight of this incredibly heavy intellect on every page of everett right and you just can't capture that in the movie and i'm not even going to blame that on court jefferson you know that's why i think really bad or mediocre books make good movies because they leave room for a director to play with like so so most cormac mccarthy i don't want to see no country for old men his most mediocre book so of course and, and the coen brothers touch it and then you know i won't take anything away from them they do what they do and it makes for a more compelling movie because it's a mediocre book compared to his other stuff this book so so interior that it engages your imagination your intellect in such a way that what you see on screen is not going work give him credit for that but the other two i won't give him credit for and that's art demands the risk of honesty and self-sorting and what monk is and whatever it is is self-aware and what cord is is full of himself when he talks and that's very different and there is no risk of honesty um in this film it feels quite a bit uh for me like if i don't know if anyone's read john cheever he has a great story called goodbye my brother about this 
upper class waspy family that hates each other. And the opening line is something like, um, we are a family that's always been very close in spirit and you immediately know how much they hate each other, right? And I feel like it's as if someone took goodbye my brother and turned it into growing pain. Mm. That's what it feels like to watch there where suddenly we have this made for TV family movie that kind of strips away all of the complexity and the moral quandaries that force the audience members when you read the book back on themselves. How do you contemplate identity? But it's not about white people in the book. To me, it's about how black people contemplate themselves and each other, right? And so there's a great scene where he's in a waiting room uh, for his sister's um, practice, and he sees a, a young, you know, lower class black woman there. And she starts to talk to him about like, um, it's uh, Morrison Zorniel. That's that's who he's talking about. She's talking about reading these books. And he realizes that he had underestimated her intellectual capacity. And to me, that was a commentary, not on the fact that we over-represent ghetto stories or gangster stories, but that the people who think they have access to them, they underestimate the humanity and dignity of these lives. You know, um, I think there's just a lot of moral cowardice that is so, uh, I'd say, pointed that it ceases to be cowardice and it turns into something that to me is cynical and diabolical. Um, and so you have a white director in this movie that they play for laughs where he's so cartoonish that I feel white liberals can actually be in on the joke and they don't have to feel complicit. Yeah, but, they won't feel indicted at all. No, but also the way he describes his films as uh, genre pieces uh, that are merged with real life pathos Sounds not like something a white person does, but maybe what you would say Jordan Peele does, right? Uh, the other thing is of precious, these an anachronistic targets, you update the movie in ways that are regressive, which is to say you strip out all the moral complexity, but you continue to have the same antiquated an anachronistic villains or safe targets like Tyler Perry, right? But Precious and Push, if those are the targets, that wasn't a white author. It wasn't a white director. Those were not white producers. Those were all black people who created that film. So I'm not sure what purpose the white director serves, except to give both the audience and the writer an easy way out and also to excuse uh, the writer. And th the most despicable thing it does, and I mean truly despicable, like spit in someone's face for doing it, is it takes Juanita Mae Jenkins, the author of this sort of uh, minstrel novel, and it not only gives her flesh, but it gives her a voice and a spot on a panel, and it puts her in conversation with Monk. And he finds out that in some ways they're simpatico, and he's ill-equipped to challenge whatever the fuck garbage word salad they throw at you in the denouement at the end, where it's like, she's like, maybe, well, I did research, and maybe you didn't read the book, and maybe the, it's like, wait, what the fuck? At, at that point, you've actually taken the book, and you've cut its uh, soul out. Um, and, and that's just one of many things is the fact that th they keep playing for a joke that they once saw uh, their father kiss a white woman. In the book, this man has an affair with a white woman who he really views as the love of his life. And he has a child with her and his life is destroyed internally because he cannot be with this woman either because of social constraints or his own expectations, and he's in a loveless marriage. And the mother doesn't just have dementia where she runs a bath uh, tub until it overflows. She actually, I believe, tries to shoot the maid with a gun. And the, yeah. and the maid doesn't, doesn't necessarily like the family. And there's a class aspect that's been stripped out as well. And so by the time I came to the end of it, what I was reminded of was that really insipid talking point that I think um, 
I can't remember, Rod Moreau, who I actually know, and, and I, I don't dislike Rod at all. I consider him a, a good acquaintance. But Rod once quipped on Twitter that straight uh, black men are the white the people. White people, black people. people. Then I believe Damon Young ran with that and turned it into a column and it spread throughout the internet, this sort of reductive, stupid shit, right? I, I can't wait thinking, you know, all right, well, white people are the white people of black people, one. But but two, if there's a, a white people of black people, I feel like I saw them and they, they made this film and somehow they were absolved of all guilt and complicity by the film. It was as if the film built in Juanita Mae Jenkins' character and neutered Monk in order to say, hey, all of these crimes we've committed artistically, the fact that we are well past what we could have done with the social and moral cachet we had post-George Floyd, and all we've done is employ a managerial class, an empower managerial class that makes art that seems more like a Black Lives Matter lawn sign that's for white people to say, here, I did this. I put this in my yard. I went, I saw the show, I bought the t-shirt. I am a good person rather than provoke or challenge or advance us anyway. Uh, seems so cynical as to actually make me angry enough to want to hurt somebody. Um, I, I want, to, there's so many things you stated that each one can go into his own uh, thread of conversation. And I figured two things. Um, one, I want to give my answer to um, M. Tume's question about he wants to know from people who read the book recently or who read the book often um, what they thought about something. And then after that, I wanted to play, um, if no one had anything to say after that, uh, a clip of the conversation with uh, Centara Golden, which I, th I think is something that you might have left out, that on top of everything else, he changes Juanita Mae Jenkins' name to Centara Golden. I think it's another example of the kind of cowardice. Like I feel like he's just afraid of anything that might lead you to criticize him. That he's like, oh, wait, Juanita Mae Jenkins, that might sound too blackity-black. Uh, maybe someone will think we're making fun of black women. Uh, let's make it a more classy name, so supposedly. Was he, was he playing Sintara, on an anagram of Sinatra? What's that? Was he trying to do some sort of anagram of Sinatra with Centara Golden? I don't, I was, I'm not sure. I won't be surprised if the whole name put together is an anagram I, or something. I don't know. I had this feeling when he made that change that, like, if he kept it as Juanita Mae Jenkins, it... Because I went, I think I was telling either Intume or Trevor, maybe both of y'all, that after I like read the book, I went back. I was like, let me actually look up an interview with, with Sapphire to like get a sense of just who she is as a person, what she's like. And it was interesting listening to her talk about Precious or Push back in the day and like get a sense of her. And that and her essence is not Issa Rae's essence on any level. And I had this feeling that like maybe part of the reason why he changed the name from Juanita Mae Jenkins to Centara Golden had to do with just wanting to make sure that he could misdirect you enough from what the actual source material that he supposedly was critiquing was. Because the more the more you look at that, the more his argument would start to unravel to the things that you're saying that T has been saying about how these movies are actually are not so common these days. So what are you actually talking about? Yeah, I agree. I also think he is afraid, kind of similar to what you're saying, Trevor, of actually even having the argument that that Everett was having back in 2001 with it. And I think because of Precious then becoming a movie, it winning an Oscar, it 
the 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 kind of way it sits in our kind of cultural space i think he didn't want to step into that so because so making it vague i mean look he when he actually dramatizes the novel it's like a it's a it's like an eight minute thing in a room and yeah. the, remember in the book it, it's it's like, like it's hundred pages it's a hundred pages which i remember yeah. when, I, when i originally read that i remember going through like like the fourth page like is he really going to keep am i going to keep reading this am i going to keep reading this and what he needed to be able to do was to make a movie within a movie. But that's, yes. that's where you need to be a really good director. Like a really seasoned, um, trained director. And I don't even train is you have to go to film school. But even if self-trained, but you have a real dedication to the craft, you can do a whole different style of movie within um, totally, totally, and like, and and this it would have like, to be the goal. It, yeah. it would have to be like the the point of of all of it, yeah. Right, and, and that's where you feel like people like Jefferson and this kind of conformist Hollywood. You know, they shake hands because he doesn't want to do something that daring. He really, truly doesn't, yeah. and they don't want something that daring. So, so he, you know, I'll say this real quick. I also feel that if he spends that much time fleshing out the fake movie, it'll betray too much that it's anachronistic. Like if he actually did like. Say right. 20, 30 minutes of a get rich or die trying or something like that. People might be mm-hmm. like, you know, honestly, what's the last time we've seen one of these? It, it like so I think it's another reason why he has to kind of get in and get out. Right. And also that would take away from the uh, the screen time he can dedicate to white people acting stupid. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, you know, when I yeah. when I saw the screening of this movie, I was at a screening where he did a talk back afterwards, and the delight, the delight. That these people in this audience and the moderator had a feeling like it was like they'd gotten like a tongue bath up their fucking asshole. Like after they saw that movie, because they got to laugh at Michael Sarah Crichton and the other person being these like bumbling white fools that they're just so used to seeing in a lot of these new black, black, bougie black works. And I just it just blew my mind really quick. I mean, I want to say two things about this because I, I love this point of the conversation. One of the things about the novel within the novel, my pathology. And this is one of the kind of other things that sacrifice with the with the disappearance of interiority. And also this is making me think about Jason, the point I made you made earlier about the um the scene in the in the abortion clinic with that is in the beginning of the novel when he meets his sister and he meets this woman who's talking about reading gene tumor and Kane and all this stuff. Is that Part of the satire in the book and part of the cynicism, the darkness, the dark comedy of the novel is that what you realize when you get to the end of Erasure is that the whole book is about a repetition of a story. It's about a Black character who has a fraught relationship with their father and all the, I mean, if you boil it down, right? That Monk story and um, Van Gogh story. So, you know, Van Gogh is the protagonist of my pathology are not that dissimilar, right? So at the one hand, he's trying to kind of take down this kind of stereotypical kind of like mix of native son and boys in the hood. But then Monk's own story is not that dissimilar from that. Like his it. Like his it. That's exactly right. Right. And so, the, so you know, the, the movie takes all that out and then poses this kind of like boys in the hood-esque, you know, gangster narrative with like realism of like bourgeois middle-class black life, you know? And so the only way to achieve that is to create these polar opposites as opposed to in the novel where like Everett's challenging us to understand that 
these stories are kind of repeating themselves over and over and over again, even in places that like seem to be experimental. Like you still have the same story being told over and over again, right? Because um, even that scene in an abortion clinic is precious. I mean, like he's not, I mean, a push. Like he's he's kind of playing very subtly with these stereotypical narratives and showing how they're kind of close to the real life, you know? And that's the challenge he gives to the, to the, to the reader in the novel. But the movie kind of just strips all of that out and creates something very packed. Rich, I think funny of all of that is talk about representation. Mm-hmm. Talk about that. Like, if, if, if that's all you cared about was the representation, you get a million representations within that novel. Yeah. I, I think, Rich, you're, you're hitting on something really important, which is whatever it gets is that the narratives are the same because the narrative is always the same, right? Like, there are five songs that people write and seven plots of movies and books. The question is always one of integrity of purpose, right? And that's what he's saying. And the movie seems to miss that and say, well, it's whether or not you have the appropriate sort of blackness, which is was not ever its point. It's also, again, in terms of misrepresenting, and this is where I think we betray something that I think we all know about Yakub. I'm, you know, I'm saying that in jest, partially. But um, <laughs> Why, white, white people are going to go to this movie and they're going to critique this movie and they're going to miss the point because they're always going to miss the point because here's the secret and I think it's something that they know the same way we know and they being the core Jeffersons of the world white people don't give a fuck one way or another the whole point is I'm going to this show because this is what the brother with the somewhat edgy haircut and the safe voice told me was the thing. I'm going to show up and then I can talk at the cocktail party about it, right? So they don't care about whether or not this is accurate and, and the message it's sending. But it is completely inaccurate in its portrayal of some significant things. One is the modern publishing world. The head of the National Book Awards for many years was Lisa Lucas, a black woman. She then took herself to one of the major uh, publishing houses and got her own imprint where she's signing people for plenty of money, right? This is like these tropes of the white people in the room for the awards, ridiculous. Black people have been running a train on the grant fellowship and award system over the past five black excellence years, right? And I don't say that, what an image. I don't say that judgmentally. White people did it for many years. It was codified, so it was less obvious. So I'm not mad about that. Hey, take their money if you can, but let's not pretend that that's what's happening now. Thirdly, the villains. If we were going to be serious at all about who's villainous in terms of exploitation of Black experience right now, we would talk about um, creatives masquerading, uh, well, not brand ambassadors masquerading as creatives and and, uh, corporate mascots and shills masquerading as activists and public intellectuals. Those would be the targets today. That's something that you would be able to explore in a movie like this if it had even half of a testicle, right? And it doesn't. It doesn't touch on any of that. I mean, and that's why I've said from the very beginning, this movie is just cover. It is literally cover for the black, for black Hollywood, the black bourgeoisie in Hollywood to create various straw men, to coddle the white people that have accepted them into the fold by saying, we know your racism is just a lack of sophistication. We know that's that that that's your issue. It's nothing more than that. We know you're lack of sophisticated. So give us places where we can step in, teach you with a wet noodle how to treat us correctly. Give us the movie so Jeffrey Wright can go win an Oscar and we can go walk down with Meryl Streep and so on and forth. And we'll be fine. 
do that. It's just cover. Be- it's just cover because they need to create a narrative. It's funny. I was talking to someone the other day, and he was saying, "Remind me, everything is narrative. Everything is narrative. Israel has a narrative. That's why they're using it to, you know, mess with the Palestinians the way they are. Everyone has a narrative. The black black bourgeoisie and black Hollywood need a narrative to stay in power and to keep us saying, you know, what? It's really important that we all go out and watch Origin right now." And this movie is like part of it. It is literally their their attempt to hit a home run for us to go out and say, you know what? That's right. Let's all go celebrate American fiction. This is this this is our plight, and it's 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 bullshit. Mm. There was this. I mean, y'all know the Stephen Colbert uh, White House Correspondence uh, Dinner, and uh, one thing I remember about that that dinner, you know, was you know he went in on the press for going easy on George Bush. And the thing that was funny about it was at the time, the media, this is after, right? This is after 9-11 kind of died down and there was no need anymore to pretend to like George Bush. The weapons of mass destruction narrative started falling apart. So that small window where liberals were as gung-ho and war-hungry as Republicans kind of passed. And they were back to hating George W. Bush. There was even a term for it, Bush derangement syndrome. And watching Stephen Colbert take the press corps to task for going easy on George Bush, and they wouldn't act like it was so brave and he was speaking truth to power. But, you know, I always said, like, if you look at the response to it, I think there's only one guy, I think at the Boston Globe, who actually seemed to take offense or was defensive about it. But they all loved it. And I'm like, for something that's supposed to be taking down the press corps uh, for being so soft on George Bush, you know, going easy on him, why do they love it? And media people and journalists are some of the most thin-skinned people on the planet. So if this was really coming at them, they would be livid and hate Colbert forever. But that was the start of Colbert's time as a media darling. And what I had realized is that they hated George Bush. They already were attacking George Bush all the time. But by fake critiquing them and pretending that they weren't, he got to basically give them license to do more of what they've already been doing by pretending that they haven't been doing it. And that's why they loved it because now it's like, you know what? He's right. We're not bashing him enough. That's And I feel like this does the same thing for uh, the black bourgeoisie. Like, we're going to be fake underdogs. We're going to be fake erased. Like, they're pretending that they're, they're the erased ones. Like, like, the title of the book is called Erasure. And I think I can only speculate because he didn't explicitly say why it's called Erasure. But I think uh, Monk feels erased, the type of writer he is. But how is Cord Jefferson and Issa Rae and Tracy Ellis Ross and Sterling Brown, how are any of them erased? Like, they're winning. They are the mainstream of Black fiction now. And it's like, just like, you know, Colbert had to pretend that the press corps was being suppressed and not allowed to uh, critique Bush or not critiquing Bush enough. So, you know, oh, you quiet mice, you have to actually speak up now when they've been like bashing him day in, day out. You know, it's a freedom to double down. Cord Jefferson is like, he's doing Watchmen. He's um getting uh, all these glowing accolades and white liberals love him. There's no white liberals saying uh, there's too much Cord Jefferson out there. They can't get enough of him. They give him everything. Easter Raid, everybody loves. Starting Browns and everything. Blackish, you know, was loved by white people. It wasn't like, say, Girlfriends, which is Tracy Ellis Ross, you know, original big work, which I think is more of a black famous thing. She doesn't really do black famous stuff anymore. She does white famous black work. And they're all going through this fake outsider, fake underdog, dog and pony show. 
that's just basically self-advertisement, like give us more work. Let's pretend, let's all play this game that we're not the winners now. And the two things this is most compared to, which is Bamboozled and Hollywood Shuffle, are both outsider works. They're both uh, underdog works. And it feels weird to say that about uh, Spike Lee because people kind of remember him or think of him as like, you know, the establishment uh, Negro now and he had, you know, a studio deal. But people forget how controversial Spike Lee used to be and it was considered a huge snub what happened to do the right thing. Uh, maybe one mm-hmm. of you remember, but was it even nominated? I know it didn't win, but I don't it, was think it was nominated even... for one award. I think it was best yeah. director. It wasn't best picture. Yeah, yeah. That, I mean, and that's when it was it Sally Field or somebody went up there and said the best picture isn't nominated this year. It, it was it was famous that one a white actress. I yeah, can't who it was. I think it was Sally Field and, said, and, um, yeah, and, the best picture was not nominated this year. And Cisco and Ebert kept railing about it on the show and in their art and in their articles, like how terrible it was. And when Spike Lee went into bamboozled, he kind of had that outsider spirit, even though he was kind of in Hollywood. He kind of felt like he wasn't really there. And and Robert Townsend was really on the outside. You know what I mean? Like uh, he was he was struggling with the roles he was given and everything. And yet Corey Jefferson is not an underdog like they were when they made those things. It's fake. It, it just drives me fucking nuts. That he's sitting well, there pretending Robert, that, 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 he, that he's in the position that they were in and saying the same thing when he's actually taking shots at uh, old movies. And th- this is a quick thing I'm going to say, and then I'm going to let whoever was uh, jumping in go in. But there's an excerpt he had here that I think was typical. He's going around at, and in the hotel room, right, when Monk is watching the TV shows and movies, they're showing 12 Years of Slave, which was from 2013, Get Rich and Die Trying, which I think was from 2006. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, he, his premise is so full of shit, he can't even use recent examples. Like, like he can't pull up a movie from less than 10 years ago because it's a lie. Like, if he tried to give examples with new movies and uh, somebody tried to say, oh, well, maybe he did that because of rights. I'm like, what do you mean rights? He could have got he could have got the rights to something if it existed. If all these recent... But but this, this is what, what he said, and then, then I'll be done. This is the answer to an interview he had in Slate. He goes, I mean, this is a conversation my friends and I have been having for years. Look, movies like 12 Years a Slave are important. I love New Jack City and Django Unchained. Oh, Boys in the Hood is on? Let's watch it. The important question needs to be asked, the question I'm asking now is, why is this stuff being made to the omission of everything else? He adds, why is this what we focus on solely he uses the word solely when it comes to what's deemed pristine black art. Why is it always a tragedy and misery, abuse and violence, cross burnings and lynchings, shootings and murder and death and drugs? Why has black life become reduced to just that on screen? And I'm like, okay, your examples are New Jack City, which is from the 90s, Django Unchained. Does anyone know when that's from? I know it's from a while ago. Like 2015, something like that. Okay. And then Boys in the Hood, which I think is like 1990. So 1988, 1990, 2013, and 2015. Those are the five examples you can, those are the best examples. Like your examples are undermining your own, your own point. You can't come up with anything below because it's bullshit because you are the lack of nuance in black art right now. Uh, The professional class, the black professional class with assimilation anxiety. And the interesting thing is that he actually could find some more recent examples such as Underground Railroad those but would be his friends. Do that, that would also undermine him because those that kind of content is also has that black bourgeoisie sort of filter running right. off. Yeah, wow. yeah, yeah. They're made by the so-called solution to the problem, the black excellence class. So he can't right. call them out. 
all right y'all so that is the end of part one go to again patreon.com forward slash champagne sharks or click the link in the show notes to get part two be good